This is Salt and Spine. I was like, God, can you just imagine a tortilleria, you know, like a tortilla bakery, like a tartine bakery with those lines out there and just like the theater of it and just how cool would that be? Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Jorge Gaviria. Now, Jorge is the founder of Macienda, which is focused on revitalizing masa by sourcing from hundreds of traditional farmers growing heirloom corn. Masa is, of course, the dough made from nixtamalized corn that goes on to become tortillas, tamales, sopes, and many more Mexican and global staples. After working in restaurants, Jorge was apprenticing at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, when he set his sights on masa. Before long, he found himself on research trips in Oaxaca, supplying top chefs with heirloom masa harina, and starting his own company. Now, eight years later, Masienda is sourcing from a network of 2,000 farmers across six states in Mexico. Not bad for starting with just a dozen farmers. And the whole time Jorge's been standing up against Big Ag and the mammoth companies that have a monopoly on mass-produced masa harina. In fact, Jorge notes that 98.5% of corn grown in the U.S. goes to non-food uses, things like ethanol, shoe polish, cattle feed. But disturbingly, Jorge notes that the majority of us happen to be eating the same stuff. Jorge knew that a focus on genetic diversity and regenerative farming practices would produce incredible flavor and texture. And as his business grew, Jorge realized something else was lacking too, a text. Now he's published that book, Masa, Techniques, Recipes, and Reflections on a Timeless Staple. It's a quite comprehensive tome, nearly 300 pages, on the history of corn and masa, and a guide that's as useful for home cooks as it is scientists. Nixtamalizing your own corn at home? Jorge walks you through it and offers practical lessons on how to make high-quality masa in your home kitchen. Somewhat shockingly, it's the first major cookbook of its kind to focus on masa. And of course, Jorge tackles how to cook with it. Masa offers us 50 base recipes for tortillas, tamales, pozole, and more to build on, as well as inventive recipes from top chefs around the world. Americans have been consuming more tortillas than hamburger buns and more salsa than ketchup for years. And now Jorge writes that like sourdough before it, craft masa is on the brink of a global culinary movement. In today's show, we're talking with Jorge about what led him to this focus on masa and launching his company, Masienda, about how we're now in this third wave of masa. And of course, we're putting him to the test in our signature culinary game. Paid subscribers will also receive access to three delicious recipes from Jorge's book. Later this week on our Substack, you'll find recipes for table tortilla masa, as well as blue masa sourdough bread and a masa tempura batter. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special content like essays, Q&As with chefs and authors, and author-read excerpts, including one from Jorge, from the cookbooks we feature. And now let's head to our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Jorge Gaviria joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Jorge. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yes, we're thrilled to have you um, to talk about your cookbook, Masa. It is a cookbook, but it's yeah. also so much more. <laughs> I love when we we have guests who you know have produced books that are not just recipes, but like have so much substance to really dive into. So um, we're going to have a, a good chat today. But we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you, how yeah. you got to 
writing this book. Um, so you grew up in Miami, yeah? I did, yeah. Born and raised. Can't can't escape it. <laughs> okay. Uh, and your your mom, Mexican. Your dad, I think, was born in Cuba. Can you yeah. talk about your relationship to food growing up and and what memories you have of that? Yeah. You know, I uh, these are things that I started to think about much later in life. It wasn't as sort of top of mind and sort of consciously, uh, you know, involved in the in, in those early days but you know my mom and dad were really products of just immigrants on the run you know they uh they moved all around latin america they were in dominican republic puerto rico spain you know i think what was interesting is that you know that compounded by where i was miami is such an eclectic melting mm. pot of latin communities you know there's sure. so much uh, it's really kind of like a safe haven for so much instability throughout latin america so you get a huge Venezuelan population, a really big Colombian population, uh, you know, Guatemalan, um, some Mexican, not as much actually. And, uh, you know, the result is, is kind of a melting pot of, of foods and flavors and people and, uh, all bound by Spanish, which is the, which Uh is the official spoken language of Miami. Uh Yes. (laughs) Um, but you know, I grew up eating, uh, Cuban food. I grew up eating, you know, tostadas, toaster tostadas with like Munster cheese on top, you know, carnitas on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, pupusas, like it, it was, it all was normal, you know, none of it felt like it was sort of other or, you know, didn't belong to kind of the place that we were. And I think, I didn't really think about that until much later in life when I was working at restaurants like, you know, Danny Meyer's Maiolino in New York City or Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And the the level of detail and intention behind sourcing was really astounding to me. You know, it really it, sure. like connected me with foods that, you know, obviously were deeply pleasurable. But I was like, my gosh, what if we were to do this with the foods that I grew up eating? You know, it's just they didn't seem as well represented in this like you know, intentional sourcing, farm to table ethos. And that was like the moment where I was like, let's, let's do this. And let's start with Masa. Yeah. You have that moment while I think while you're working at Blue Hill at Stone Barnes, but how do we get to that moment? How, what are you thinking sort of career wise? Did you, did you go to college? What did you study? Like what, how'd you end up working at these restaurants? Like paint that path for, uh, for us a little bit. And then we'll talk about that moment where you said, let's, let's dive into Masa. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad I've been doing therapy for as long as I have now. (laughs) It's just so much easier to, to, to we won't go go too deep there, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, I graduated, uh, from school in New York. I went to NYU and studied communication studies. Um, And uh, it was all really kind of like a means to an end to get to law school. That was my end goal. Okay. Um, I taught, graduated in 2009. So kind of a tough time economically. Um, Everyone was going to law school. I was like, let me just take two years and figure my life out. So I actually taught uh, in AmeriCorps um, in in Brooklyn. So at a really kind of tough school, um, to say the least, just like a shocking eye-opening experience about the state of education. It was a transformation school and, you know, you really have to survive and like learn how to get to 35 kids, you know, quickly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was really, really formative for me because it's sort of so much of what we do today at Macienda is, is education, you know, and, um, and this book is certainly educational, but, um, you know, one of the cool things about that experience is that I found ways to teach kids, uh, about math, for example, you know, like ratios and things that they were learning. This is middle school. So like, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, sure. remember that kind of math. Yeah. Um, and food was the easiest way to do that, you yeah. know, like following recipes and having them convert from grams to, I don't know, ounces or whatever the, whatever right. the systems are. I'm not very good at that stuff. <laughs> um, but I taught it, of course. Um, and, you know, I think that process, the more I started to pay attention to like what I naturally gravitated toward, I, and the more I listened to it and indulged it, the more I realized 
I don't really belong in law school. You know, I, I went so far as to take the LSATs. Okay. I applied to schools. And it was at the last second. I read Danny Meyer's book, uh, Setting the Table. He, uh-huh. did, he did the same thing. I was like, that's it. I'm going. And yeah. my dad's a lawyer. And okay. I said, you know, dad, like, I read this book. He's doing pretty well for himself. Um, sure. You know, I know you want me to go to law school, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to go to Italy instead and study okay. farming. And he's like, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that. Your grandfather, my dad, was a restaurateur. I was like, I thought he was a lawyer. And he was like, he was a lawyer. Um, (laughs) But he also was a restaurateur. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I've been searching this whole, like, trying to connect with who I am. And like, it turns out it was there all along. Yeah. So uh, I had his blessing. I went to Italy for a year or just under a year. I was at a place called Spanocchia, which if you know, you know, it's a really beautiful uh, agricultural estate that is all about preserving heritage breeds of animals and, uh-huh. you know, heirloom produce. And uh, I did a farming and butchering apprenticeship there. And it was there that I met the chef of Maialino, Nick Ander, then chef, uh, who gave me a job, you know, carte blanche. He's like, whatever you want to do when you get back to New York, let me know. I would love it if you worked with us. Sure. So I got a job as a line cook uh, at Maialino cutting you know salumi which felt pretty pretty right Right. um and uh you know it was a roman trattoria uh which i think has since reopened in a different location but you know i learned i learned how to become self-sufficient which was like my only goal by working in a restaurant that and like i just wanted to explore where i belonged in all of this food um kind of ecosystem and uh i was promoted a few times he got to the point where he's like you know we're opening a new restaurant uh if you want you know we'll give you a leadership position there you can be sous chef and i was like i'm just not cut out for that. Like, I really appreciated the experience. Um, I felt like I just, it was a, the repetition of cooking, like in this, you know, this really elevated way, Uh um, from a, from an execution perspective, you do something like thousands of times a day, you know, and it's like, you get kind of good at it. Right. I loved it, but like, I didn't want to think about how to create a menu every day and, you know, like order ingredients, even though that's all I do today. Um, (laughs) so I I started working at Blue Hill at Stone Barns after that. Uh, I did their farms apprenticeship, which is the I think the acronym is like front of house apprenticeship for restaurant management service. I think I got that right. Okay. And it basically takes you through every aspect of the entire operation there from the farm, you know, which you do rotations with the farm, the kitchen, um, and of course the front of house with a goal of being able to really kind of comprehensively, holistically storytell to guests right? and have that unique perspective, which is so critical to how, you know, that food was, is delivered and I think still executed today. Um, and it was there, you know, Dan was writing his book, uh, the third plate, um, it was just about to come out and he was talking a lot about just being intentional about sourcing and, and kind of connecting the dots, you know, before the ingredient arrives to us, you know, taking a more active role in the breeding process. And, you know, I just was like, man, again, like this is, I gotta do something here. Like I can't, I can't just, I loved being in restaurants. Um, and I love the culture of of just the camaraderie of working with you know a group of people who are working late hours and yeah. it's just it's fun but right i i wanted to work with restaurants you know and not necessarily inside of them anymore and um was ready to to launch my own thing and so you you decide it's going to be masa that you're gonna i mean you hadn't had a particular passion or interest in studying the history of masa up no. up until this point right <laughs> no. you kind of have a light ball moment and i think yeah. most uh, most if not all of our listeners know what masa is but yeah can you can you just explain what masa is um, for yeah. anybody who might not be familiar with it as an ingredient yep. and then how how you sort of had that light bulb moment where you decided to go down this path yeah it's a clean four-letter word that mm-hmm. we uh actually until this book came out i feel like a lot of people don't know what masa is we did like a study of this like a year ago and people were like 
you know, it was just crickets. Um, masa is a, is it means dough in Spanish. It's uh, more specifically though in Mexico and throughout kind of, you know, modern day Mesoamerica, Central America. Um, it is a corn dough that is derived from nixtamalized corn, which is just not fancy. It's just like a technical way of saying like it's corn that's been treated with an alkaline agent. Um, sure. In this case, probably like calcium hydroxide, but could have been ash. Yeah. Um, that makes it palatable, makes it really tasty um, and highly nutritious and workable into a dough. Yeah. So it's it's a when we say masa, think of like 12 hours have gone into just making this possible. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then it's shaped into so many different things that we know and love across, you know, the masa canon. Right. So you, you decide masa is going to be the thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and th- like, how quickly does this happen? Because then I know at some point you, you then go to Oaxaca and mm-hmm. you start to learn more about the history of masa and, and meet some farmers and things. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that trip. But yeah. is that like, does that happen pretty quickly? No. Well, I mean, it was a six month process. I started okay. working in Blue Hill at like August, September is when I'm like, I'm doing this, you okay. know, and, uh, I, I researched for several months on where to, you know, the, the half-baked idea, and we're here in San Francisco, so I have to give a shout-out to, like, Tartine. It was sure. top of mind. I was like, God, can you just imagine a tortilleria, you know, like a tortilla bakery? Yeah. Uh, like a Tartine bakery with yeah. those lines out there and just, like, the theater of it and just how cool would that be? Um, and when I saw, I, I knew at that point, nixtamalization and kind of what that all entailed, I was like, God, no one knows about that. Like, let's just like, let's just like really ham it up and make it something that people can see and create theater out of it, you yeah. know, um, because it deserved it. And, uh, I was like, oh, but we just need to figure out a supply chain for that. Mm-hmm. And when I turned to kind of sources around the U S like there just wasn't anything to me that was really telling the story differently. Nothing was quite hitting, you know, it's not sure. to say like, there aren't great ingredients in the U S there definitely are. But you know, if you think about the food way, it starts in Mexico, like mm-hmm. corn was invented in Mexico. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I was like, let's just explore what's there and, and understand that story and the relationship to where it is today. Um, and it's, I mean, without getting too, this is like, this is a big rabbit hole, but my gosh, there are about 3 million smallholder farmers. I learned, um, that okay. preserve the entire genetic supply of, corn in the world yeah all of it like any corn you've ever had sweet corn which is like a very small percentage of the corn grown in the world believe it or not right um you know otophile bloody butcher you know like Mm -hmm. anything for polenta you've ever had you know green dent like all of these things that people are talking about today all of this originates in mexico and has a uh, it's sort of roots there and yet these folks are basically preserving a sort of living, breathing seed bank out in the world. Um, right. They do it for subsistence purposes, which is means like they're not growing it for, for cash. They grow it to feed their families and their communities. And uh, the interesting sort of dilemma was that in 1994 with NAFTA, mm-hmm. that just completely destroyed any opportunities they had to sell any surplus, you know, right. on the market in a, in a way that sort of created true fair competition. Because what was happening is that the U.S. was able to now just commodity dump onto Mexico super right. cheap corn that was already subsidized in the U.S. and then it was subsidized again in Mexico. And these farmers are just trying to sell something of high quality. It was hard to compete. So a lot came to the U.S. And so I was like, oh my gosh, not only is this corn ostensibly incredible, it's like the 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 best of the best, there's a huge impact opportunity here. And so I tried to connect with folks in my research. I was, you know, like reading every New York Times article, anything that had ever been written about this time, this watershed moment. And I would call like Greenpeace and they'd be like, hey, I saw your article. I saw your quote. Do you have any farmers I could connect with? They're like, no, we're really passionate about the idea of what's going on, but actually we don't know anybody. And I was like, 
Huh, interesting. And I was almost going to give up until one group, CIMIT, uh, it's the Center for Maize and Wheat Improvement, basically. I can't okay. remember the exact acronym off the top of my head. International Center for Maize and Wheat Improvement, but okay. in Spanish, which is okay. why that's not sure. lining up. Okay. Um, and uh, they were like, you know, it's crazy. You're thinking about doing this. Um, we have this initiative where we're trying to really motivate people to grow corn and really, you know, preserve these traditions. There's just no incentive for them to do it, you know, to really kind of increase their their scope uh of production so right. you know if you're interested this might be the missing link and they connected me with some farming communities throughout mexico we did a pilot we started with about 12 farmers about two truckloads of corn and i remembered uh you know very quickly that tortilleria that i started out wanting to do yeah was like this is just too much like just getting corn i was still working at blue hill i was literally taking calls with a custom broker to get it across the border while i was in service like uh -huh. calling from the bathroom you know yeah, and, like my right. <laughs> my runner's vest you know what i mean like i right. was a terrible employee um and uh you know what was interesting was that the folks that i was working with at the restaurant level enrique Olvera was one of the guests at, mm -hmm. at uh, blue hill at one point i called him up and i was like hey i don't know if you have an interest but here you're opening this restaurant super excited for it it's called cosme yep um do you need corn? He's like, actually, I do need corn. I was like, amazing. I'm like, well, yeah, I was that guy that checked your coat at Blue Hill and I'm good for it, but could I just get a couple thousand dollars to get a deposit down for right. this and uh, just make good on these farmers? Right. And so he did. And, you know, they were their first customer and ended up being just like all, it was just the most auspicious moment, you know, like it was very fortuitous to just connect with him, connect those dots. And Cosme ended up becoming really kind of like this early mover in this sort of third wave Masa movement is what we're calling it now. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about this third wave Masa movement. You, you sort of compare it to the, the three waves of coffee mm -hmm. um, and, and the, a similar sort of three waves of Masa. And can you talk us through a little bit of that, right? The first wave is the invention of Masa Harina, right? Yeah, Essentially, exactly. right? Like versus the traditional method and, yeah. and what an impact that had. Real good. Right. Wow. Really, I read the book. You really read the book. <laughs> I did. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, coffee, you know, without, I, 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 I took for granted how many people may or may not know about third wave coffee, but this idea is basically like, you know, let's break it up into three chapters, convenience, mm -hmm. experience, and then like, just detail and quality basically right. Right? right so in coffee that was Folgers uh and you know like Nescafe for that convenience era yeah coffee comes from Africa you know and it was before the 1900s it was really hard to access you know like we weren't as connected as we were today sure and so you know just the advent of coffee that you could just add water to was a revelation nobody was really thinking about the quality of it because it was just like it took a pretty complex process and just made it easy to use and, and adopt and um you know consume every yeah. day uh it's a drug um right. so <laughs> yeah. let's just be let's be clear corn is not a drug as i said on mine yeah, exactly <laughs> corn is not <laughs> yeah. a drug coffee you know coffee is but it, masa has the same moment so you know we talk about nixtamalization it's like a 12 hour process more or less then you have to before the advent of electricity you know the matriarch of the home would be on her hands and knees just mm -hmm. grinding this corn this nixtamal over and over and over again for potentially hours on a yeah. metate you take that process you know you just add water to a dehydrated version of that. And like, it was a bit of a revelation. Yeah. Um, and actually it was a slow burn. Uh, people think that Maseca, so Maseca was actually not the original pioneer of Masarina. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the credit goes to a tortilla in, in Texas that started this around the turn of the century in like 19, it was like 1896, I think. But, 
um, was 1896. It, yeah, I've got it right nice, here. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, and it was Jose Bartolome Martinez. Martinez. Yeah. Um, and they went through a couple different names uh, in the course of you know their their ownership, and still actually around today. But you know, not only did he create Masarina for the first time, you know, he noticed that in Texas the sun would sort of dry their masa quite quickly, uh-huh. um, and he didn't want to have any losses because it's such a highly perishable product. He just thought to like intentionally dehydrate this and he was the first to really create it but maseca is the one that gets all the credit yeah um, so much so that people think they're saying masarina when they're saying maseca right which is like saying like you know sharp pass me a sharpie and it's like it's actually a marker exactly it right probably is a sharpie but yeah. yeah you know what i mean or kleenex versus tissue exactly, exactly. exactly. all of that yeah and i mean there's still uh, there's still a significant maseca monopoly yeah, today so. right i yeah. mean and they they own the mission brands yep. they own a number of other brands guerrero. guerrero um so that's that's still really predominantly how most people consume masa yeah right? yeah i mean and, and actually so the second wave was about kind of capturing that experience of of you know the traditional process and it was a you know re- a result of a lot of the immigrant populations that had moved to the u.s uh from mexico and central america finding jobs mm-hmm. around the 60s especially and there was no good place to find a tortilla in this joint you know like right. you couldn't you couldn't get good masa and you know if you know, like it's, it's, it's literally the bedrock of the cuisine. Right. So, uh, a lot of small businesses started, um, around that time to kind of just use American corn, whatever they could get to kind of just recreate that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is like, you know, this experience piece of the second wave of coffee. Starbucks was just trying to create that experience of like the Milan coffee shop, you know, and the coffee culture that existed around it. And it was, it started off like, I think well-intentioned, but Maseca and the parent company Gruma just became so big that they really started to dictate the terms that these these sort of diaspora tortillas were producing on. Yeah. And started to make sure they basically bribed by hook or crook, they started making sure that Maseca was a part of every single one of these places. So gradually the, the traditional method eroded a little bit. Sure. A lot a bit. Yeah. Um and uh, you know, this is sort of the state for a couple decades. Um there are many that still exist today. El Milagro is the hero of the story uh, that I mentioned in the book. If yeah. you've never heard of them, they're just like I mean, they're just insanely prolific. The amount that they produce, it's like billions of tortillas a year that is still done the traditional way Yeah, is really, it is like mesmerizing to me. But uh, yeah, the, this third wave is sort of this moment we find ourselves in today. It was this kind of timed with the launch of Macienda, my company, though it's not about us, like it's now become so much more than us. Sure. Um, chefs uh, and now home cooks who've taken a real deep interest in connecting with it. Um, on a deeper level and have actually tried to nixtamalize at home and like realizing it's not actually that complicated. Like right. if you ever boiled pasta, you know, it's like basically or beans, beans. Right. I feel like beans are even more complicated than masa, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a shorter cooking process. You just sort of let it hang out. Grinding can sometimes be a hang up for folks, but you know, we, we cover that in the book and find ways to tackle it, but it's really just like reconnecting with it. And it's not, it's not new. What's sort of ironic is that like, it's just a return to the traditional roots. Uh, but in an intentional way, in a way that's like sort of devoutly celebrating it, um, right. which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. And you, you mentioned restaurants and restaurateurs mm-hmm. and Enrique and others and sort of starting to drive that movement towards getting back to the traditional way. It's been a pretty recent shift, right? I mean, you even yeah. mentioned cookbook authors, like preeminent cookbook authors, mm-hmm. people like Diana Kennedy, of course, or even Rick Bayless may have like a mention mm-hmm. in a, a cookbook from, you know, seven, 10 years ago yeah. for how, a couple pages, maybe. Yeah. I'm like, if you want to, you can, but <laughs> most 
first you say, I think most, you know, few people really believed that anybody, uh, any home cook would actually attempt the process. So it's yeah. really been a pretty recent shift um, yeah. into this third wave that we're in. Yeah. And I think like it was to me, the things that were missing before one was the ingredient. You couldn't buy raw corn, like unless yeah. you were going to buy like a pallet of it from like a, you know, real big commodity broker. Yeah. Um, you know, it was in access to the ingredients. It was access to the actual tools and hardware, you know, like I mentioned grinding can kind of be a bit of a hang up. Everyone's got a pot, you know, like you, right. so you can totally nixtamalize at home. And if you don't want to grind, you can make pozole, which is basically masa in development, you know? Right. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, like tools became available. Masienda being, you know, we started a, a tabletop Molino that has completely, it's beyond my wildest expectations or dreams. Like there are hundreds, now thousands of people who own one of these things and are starting their own cottage businesses or they're a home cook sure. or chefs who, if they had a taco on the menu, they're, they're making sure it's like the best version of itself. Sure. Um, and then the last thing was a text. Nobody, you know, there was so little written, especially when I went to go start Masienda and was researching yeah. Dave Arnold had like a deep dive on nixtamalization. It was, you know, like sufficiently nerdy and kind of scratched sure. the itch, but like right. it, there were so many unanswered questions. And I think you look at any movement, which this has become a full fledged movement. There's like, I'm seeing it every yeah. day. It's on right. the internet. It's in real life. Um, you, you realize that like everything, you know, all of the South beach diet, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) keto, Uh any food movement has a text and Masa was missing that text, which is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I I was shocked too, as I was thinking about the fact that this is really the first major book dedicated to Masa. Yeah. When, when did you decide that you should do this book? I think you had put together a booklet of your own for Masienda and realized like maybe there's something here for the general public too. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, I think my journey is trying to be, you know, offer the best level of service we could to, to chefs at the very beginning of Masienda any questions they had, I needed to be able to answer because my job depended on it, you know, like the ability to sell and connect this farmer, you know, farmer surplus to a market. If I couldn't explain confidently how to do it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't buy it. Yeah. Um, And so there was a lot of knowledge sharing. um, And I was just, you know, I loved, I, I, again, like that education sort of experience in me just like, was like, wow, this is so cool. I want to document this and I just want to share what we're all learning here. And so Mm -hmm. next to all the the booklet was a self-published primer that we just did as sort of like a gift to, you know, customers. And then we ended up having an online store, started selling it and we sold thousands of copies. Okay. I was like, wow, yeah. (laughs) like the title is a deep cut on itself. You know, like this is amazing that people (laughs) are really inspired by it. Yeah. Inspired by it. And, um, you know, that kind of gave me some confidence. I was like, well, you know, it'd be cool one day to do like a, a deeper dive and really, but I was so intimidated by it because, um, man, I mean, gosh, like identity issues that come up, you know, uh, you know, like what I, I, I'm not any one particular culture, you know, I'm definitely fully Latino, but I'm not, you know, I just, I felt like I had a bit of imposter syndrome and uh-huh. like, why should I be writing this? Like someone else can write it. Yeah. And yet no one else was writing it. Yeah. And like, it was clear no one else was going to write it. And so at some point I was just like, you know, it's been a few years. I, I, I need to just like start exploring this journey and see where it takes me. Um, and I put a proposal together, shopped it around, you know, some publishers actually were like, this is not a publishable book. Yeah. You got a lot of pushback. Yeah, I did. Um, and I get it like publishing as I'm learning is, you know, it's all about de-risking concepts and especially you need like a strong social media presence and all these things. It's a whole, it's, it's a game. And, uh, not to mention the first of anything, it's always a hard sell, you know? And I think like Masa, it was, again, it like, it, it still fires me up. 
how does, how do we all, these publishers included, these agents included, how do we all consume this food? And yet like, you're telling me this is niche? Like mm-hmm. you probably had a taco five minutes ago. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. it's not that niche. Right. Um, it's, it's niche because we don't know anything about it. Yeah. And that's cause there's no book, book on it. Yeah. So I was very, very motivated. My agent that I ended up working with, uh, Andriana from, from ICM, she, she really championed the book and we ended up getting a wonderful deal with Chronicle, which is based here in San Francisco. Yeah. And, uh, they gave me free range to really just take it, take it in whatever direction I wanted. But, um, it was important that it, there was something there for everyone, you know, like sure. I wanted the food nerd in me and the food nerds that we, you know, have helped write this book to feel really satisfied and seen, um, because it's such an important tribe to what we do. I wanted, uh, people who, whose cultures are represented in this to feel seen and like celebrated. Uh-huh. And I wanted home cooks to have, I mean, it's a cookbook, so it's got to look beautiful. It's got to taste really good. And you know, it, it had to do all of that, um, in a pretty, what I feel is like brief. People are like, it's a tome. I'm like, it's actually much shorter than some of the kind of these popular sure. uh, cookbooks out there right now. But, um, it, and I think that we actually ended up pulling it off quite well. Yeah, it's relatively comprehensive. Yeah. Relatively. I mean, for sure, comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you balance that? How, as you were working on this, how did you sort of, you know, wanting to be able to have something for the science geeks mm-hmm. and the home cooks? Like, I imagine there was some tension there. Yeah. I had my in-laws in mind. So I married, my wife is uh, Ashkenazi Jewish. You know, okay. she grew up in a suburb in Los Angeles. And okay. like, I've always used them as my litmus test for like, am I getting through to you right sure. now? You know, like, yeah. do you know what I do? And do you know what Masa is? And so... I, I kind of had a couple people in my mind, uh, you know, as I was writing it and I, I mentioned that paragraph I read, um, it was fun that like, it doesn't say, take itself too seriously, mm-hmm. you know, like Harold McGee's a hero of mine. He, he read the book and you know, wrote a blurb on it. And yeah, I, I like that. It was like, it was just a much more approachable way to understand science and like demystify a word, you know, like nixtamalization that can can sometimes either eyes glaze over or people are just like no way like sure. it's just too much so right. yeah i think photos really help you know like yeah I, I think the words obviously were very intentional but worked with uh nicole harriet uh and michael graden who've done my heroes cookbooks i mean they did jelena uh by mm-hmm. travis lett which is stunning like yeah. cook from that all the time yeah um yeah dinner at the long table by andrew tarlow and uh-huh. his whole crew um what else? They just did Andy Baragani's book, The Cook You sure. Want to Be, yeah. Alison Roman's recent books. Like, it was such a pleasure. I mean, it, it's integral to tell the story properly. Like, they have such an elegant way of capturing whatever their 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 subject is. And man, it's like to to have them for two weeks in Mexico showing them what we do. And yeah, they they became believers at the end of this too. They were like, oh, "We'll do it." It's, we're excited about this project, but we don't really know much about it. And like by the end of it, like we're sort of all in tears, being like, "Man, this is this is really special what we just did." You know? Yeah, yeah. The photos are incredible. They they did a great job. You open the book by by asking the question, "What makes for the perfect masa?" Mm-hmm. And then you know, eventually we we somewhat learn that like there's no single approach yeah. or or technique. But I assume you're asked that question often. Like, how do yeah. I make the best masa yeah. that, that I can? And do you have a, a response at this point? Or is it really that open-ended sort of, there's no, yeah. there's no right or wrong? I mean, I, there's definitely like, you, I don't like it should be well hydrated, you know, like there's <laughs> sure. some, there's yeah. some things, but you know, I think what was cool about it was that, um, it's it's not dissimilar to the nonas of Italy who are you know arguing over like what makes for the best bolognese. And I remember reading Bill uh, Bill Buford's Heat uh-huh. and how he's like, there's just no way. He's like, it's a basic combination of like you know some like a, is it mirepoix or was it a sofrito and uh-huh. 
um, beef and like demand. I don't know. I can't right. even remember. Honestly, it's been, been yeah, ages, but yeah. um, I should know that. Uh, but he, you know, it's like at the end of the day, this is the basic combination and just adjust to what your version of delicious is, you yeah. know? And like, that's the same thing with masa. Um, you know, the only thing is that nobody really knew what those variables were and like how critical each of those were in in determining what your version of delicious is sure so that's really well mapped if you want to dive into the kernel to masa process which i would encourage you to do it at least once yeah you know and like then you can feel satisfied and do masadina like i do right <laughs> um but uh you know i think at the end of the day that's it it's just it's yeah. just uh knowing what your end goal is and then just working toward it yeah mm-hmm interested in the fact that you mentioned this imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. because i think at this point you know you've you've become a preeminent masa expert (laughs) like on the history of masa you've (laughs) you've built supply chains like you you've done so much and and yet you were still sort of um struggling with that a little bit how do you feel now that the book is out and published just do you still sort of have that feeling at times yeah i i don't feel like i wrote the book i mean i did i wrote every word in there but i feel truly that this whole community wrote this book and that sounds cheesy, but it's so true. Like I, I, it is a reflection of just the conversations and the data points that people have shared with me, you know, very graciously over the last, you know, almost 10 years. And, um, I did have imposter syndrome. I think I started writing this book in 2020, which as we know, is like, you know, obviously the the year the world changed in a lot of ways. And there was a big cultural reckoning happening too. I, I'm not, I don't live on the internet very much and I think it's can be a hostile place in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking about just like trolls and kind of like there was a lot of um, good that came out of 2020. It was a cultural reckoning, but I was like, where do I fit in that? Like, I, I know how I look, you know, like I, I've always been kind of in between two cultures. I've been, you know, exoticized by communities that don't reflect my cultural background in some ways, um, you know, it, which is, you know, interesting and whatever it is what it is it's kind of fun but also like a little weird Mm -hmm. and then um you know i've never really fit sometimes into like truly latino communities because i'm not dark enough or you know i look white or you know so i just had a i had a lot of stuff to figure out you know in this process and i just the more i kind of just owned what i was and and what i knew um the less that imposter syndrome really kind of held me back and now i just am like I truly, at the end of the day, I, I don't feel like I wrote this book. This was written by so many different people. Um, and that conversation is continuing, you know, yeah. every day. Yeah. Anything that really surprised you when you were writing the book? Yeah. I mean, how easy it sort of wrote itself in a lot of ways. Like okay. I, you know, I was like, God, I'm not, I mentioned that earlier I didn't want to be a chef because I didn't want to come up with recipes. And like, right. I was really dreading that part. They're like, chronicle was like you got it this is a cookbook man you gotta (laughs) you gotta put some put some recipes out there yeah and i thought it was really clever how it came together you know like um and it made for something wholly new you know like it's uh there's sort of these masa shapes that i go into there's 28 masa shapes um that i cover and uh i was inspired by the pasta shapes of italy like we've got really well documented masa shapes out there or sorry pasta shapes right what about masa and so i was like well you know i'm not gonna like there's so many great cookbooks out there that have been written on Mexican food. Like use this book as a compliment to those books, take a masa shape, understand it a little bit more intimately from the masa perspective. And then like take Patty Yunich's recipe or Rick Bayless or Diana Kennedy or whoever, um, and do something with it now with a little bit more intention around the masa piece. So that was really fun. It was like sort of reads like a gorgeous photographic encyclopedia uh, with some fun quirky bits of like, you know, trivia in there too. Um, mm-hmm. and then the modern masa recipes also like 
I already want to write the second book because that yeah. just wasn't enough space to to really lean into the amount of creativity that we're seeing out there today. Yeah, no, there's just a handful of those. But the the masa shapes. So when you say masa shape, you mm -hmm. mean you mean a tortilla, you mean an arepa, you mean exactly those are different masa shapes, yeah. and then those are sort of the the building blocks to all of these other recipes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you do, yeah, you do it, and have these masa explorations. You call them, which <laughs> I think are really intriguing. Very, very. Um, felt very in line with the third wave masa movement. So <laughs> yeah. like, you know, blue masa, sourdough bread, those sorts of things. From I, people who aren't, you know, exclusively Mexican either, sure. which is cool. Like you mentioned the, the blue masa sourdough, that yeah. Carlo Evaristo is a Filipino baker, you know, cottage yeah. baker. And it's like, I loved that connecting of cultures through masa. It just that, that it like gets me so fired up. Like yeah. every day it's, it demystifies a food and culture behind it and honestly brings people very close together. So Sorry, I just had to interject there. No, yeah, Sorry. no, I think that's that's a great point. I think some some of those res recipes were really interesting to see. I did see you had some critique for some of the like European framing, and mm. you talk about your your in laws mm -hmm. as kind of one of your target audiences. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine your your audience for the book is quite wide yeah. in, in your mind. And how did you sort of balance some of those things, like you know, calling something a masanoki, for yeah. instance? It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was conscious of that when I was writing it. Truth be told, that dish is how it was written on, you know, Gerardo Gonzalez at Lalito, uh, formerly Lalito's menu. So I, sure. I wanted to stay true to that. Um, and the truth is, is it actually it is gnocchi. Like it's not, it's not even. There is no masa shape. It's not a chochoyote. It's like it doesn't look like a little belly button. It literally right. is. There, if you, if anything, it's like a tiny tamal. But like that's never been done, so it didn't fully conform to the. The traditions it came from sure um though it's a perfect mashup so i think like someone asked me this recently and it's a timely one because this idea of decolonizing your diet and really just sort of honoring um you know the the hands that make it what it is not what we think it should be there are great great details that go into uh, that i take to to kind of cover the traditional formats of of what masa is you know right. and um i think that honor needs to be given to those. And, and I think it, it, it really, the space is given to it. Yeah. Um, you know, these are not, uh, this is not a, you know, the modern masa recipes in particular are not a suggestion that they're better. Like they're just like, they're mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, they're just like, you know, what we're doing in today's zeitgeist, which is like changing, you know, second to second. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The masa gnocchi is, is, uh, is a great example. I mean, I don't know. I don't just don't know what else we would call it. Cause there's sure. like no one in Mexico is doing that, you know, like, so I think it's fun. I, I think my reference point and you mentioned my in-laws is that, and you know, the, what I learned teaching a really tough group of middle school students is that sure. whatever it takes, like my end goal is to foster a connection to a food that people know and love, but don't know that they know and love and mm -hmm. need a reason to care. And if you don't, come from a masa faring nation like mexico or you know any part of uh you know that that masa map you need a reason you need a reference point and it's really helpful to be like you know this thing that has a complicated name that maybe you can't say yet sure it's not so different from something you already consume sure you know like you know it, it looks kind of like an english muffin and it's like you, you know exactly what that looks like you know it's like but it's made with masa and it's called an arepa you know right. or it's called a gordita and I think that whatever, I think that the ethos for me is meeting someone where they're at, establishing trust, bringing them along for the ride. And, you know, the medicine ends up being in that sort of ice cream, that masa, like they end up getting it because they can relate to it and don't feel, feel fear of it. You know, it's yeah. like, 
it's a it's an involved process that brings them along for the ride and i think ultimately gets them to establish a true level of respect and you know celebration of a cuisine that maybe they didn't know so well yeah yeah i think that's important and and then also sort of in line with your not taking it too seriously approach right like you also encourage people to just build your masa base and begin playing with some of the foods that you already have like yeah. leftover chicken salad or you know some right. beans like start to to play around and really understand it as an ingredient right and give people that freedom to do that well totally i mean yeah. you're so right the there are these like actual you know deliberately conceived modern masa recipes but i think what's sort of also novel in this way of of consuming today is that you know, there's, you can go to, I don't know, any fast food restaurants, it's so mainstream, there are just mashups of cultures in things that are not one culture or another. I mean, you could have like a Korean, you know, barbecue sandwich on like bread and like that sure. bread is like probably European bread, you know, right. but like there's definitely, you know, a Korean element to it or Korean tacos. Like, I think that that's a, that got me thinking about just how I can use masa in my own pantry with anything I've got in there. And like, I've got leftovers, you know, from Chinese takeout, like, right. you know, like put it on a sope, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, like one of my favorites is tostadas are basically, you know, it's just toasted tortillas. Right. 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 So, you know, it's just basically a cracker with like great crunch texture. What's not to love about that? Yeah. And like, what does that not go with? It literally goes yeah. with everything. You right. know, it doesn't care what, what goes on top of it. Right. So it's cool to kind of use it and start to, to make it your own in whatever way feels authentic to you. And I think that's, I think that's great. Yeah. So we're, we're very firmly in this third wave of Masa. Yeah. What's next for the Masa movement? Yeah. I mean, this book is, is thrilling to see. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it was out, it's out as of three days ago. So yeah. just to see the response in real life, um, it's a, there's so much here, like for cultures, people who have not seen this story in, in the world, it's, it's really validating for a lot of people I'm seeing. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people have my own kind of like cultural like exploration and identity exploration that they feel like, you know, they feel empowered to like explore their own roots in a deeper way, which is just like the, the greatest compliment I could think of. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was in Oakland last night at Bombetta and people are just, we're all like crying. Like literally I was like, why are we all, we're literally all crying right now. Like this is such a special thing. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, it's in development. Like I, Masa, you know, like this is like this, this is the prequel for the next book. Okay. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, we're seeing like, you know, Masa in so many different ways and sort of global traditions that you wouldn't have imagined. Masa Miso, Masa yeah. Kombucha, like, it's just cool to see people apply this and find ways to fold it into all things that we already know and love. And, and it's just a, it's not unique to Masa. This is happening. This is just a cross pollination we're seeing across culture in general and food is right. not an exception to that. So I think more of that. Um, and I think probably a deeper connection to where, you know, I saw there was a restaurant in, in Mexico or, uh, yeah, in Mexico in Guadalajara called Chocol. And, you know, it's a fine dining restaurant for sure. Um, but, they weren't just doing the masa like with a mill, like a molino. They, they, every single line cook was on their hands and knees using a metate. Wow. And I was like, this is, this is next level. Like yeah. this is the biggest honor to this tradition. And I think it's just going to be more, more nuance, like more, um, complexity explored. And, uh, frankly, like more versatility in how we approach this food and not feel like it has to be made for us, first of all. Sure. Um, and uh, it's not limited in terms of the, the culture that it represents. It can represent so many cultures because it is a connective tissue. It's 
it's the greatest starch known yeah. to man. Yeah. Well, I've only asked you about a third of my questions, oh, yeah. um, but we're, yeah. we're, we're right. Re- I, I mean, there's, there's so much in this book. We could, mm-hmm. we could spend all day talking about masa for sure. Um, but, uh, I want to ask one more question before we end with our little game. So we're a show on cookbooks. I always like to ask if you mentioned a few mm-hmm. that, you know, your photographers also worked on yeah. and we've talked about, you know, Diana Kendi, but are there cookbooks that have been really important to you? And now having written your, your first cookbook, um, of your own, mm-hmm. like that, that were inspirational to you. Oh man. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there were, it made it a joy to research this, uh, you know, certainly the works of Diana Kennedy, Rick Bayless, um, were important to just set up the, even the possibility of a book like this. Um, you know, uh, Nopolito, I had a chance to do an event with Gonzalo last night and just the depth of his experience and relationship with, Mexican food and you know is is amazing and it really comes out in that book it it's like I'm rereading that now with fresh eyes and and just in love with it um oh man how do you pick your favorites this I is know. Just, it's but, so hard yeah, yeah. Those, I mean those are some good ones I yeah. uh you know I was really inspired by Mr. Jews um yeah. you know uh, and excited to eat there next week when I come back into town you know Brandon's book to me was so much more than a cookbook like it really mm-hmm. was uh, it was a moment for the Chinese American experience to be seen. And then, um, to me, it was like the way I felt reading that and the kind of invitation, really the invitation, like the welcome that you feel to explore a food that is, can be intimidating or you didn't grow up with, or you don't feel like you have any business cooking Yeah, so much noise, but like, it was just such a beautiful invitation to celebrate it. And, uh, it was a big inspiration when I was kind of at the the sort of tail end of this book writing it and putting it together what a what a great model yeah those are some great books well we always end with little games so mm. um i was thinking several years ago probably three years ago we had gabriella camera on mm, and we cool. played a can you taco it game yeah. and i was like great, okay great book by the way yes love her book um she was she was actually the first live show we ever did it was so fun i thought we'd just expand it like we mm-hmm. played can you taco it with her and i'm like i can't imagine like i'm not i'm convinced that none of these cards that we have would not in some way go with masa okay. so i thought we'd play a you know can you masa it game okay. and um there's four stacks of cards there so vegetables proteins flavors are spices herbs etc and mm-hmm. then the secret ingredient are kind of the wild cards so you can feel free to sort of mix and match and draw a couple and see i'd love to see if you could tell us how we might incorporate masa and those ingredients and make some sort of uh, wonderful dish okay so i just pick a card you can or... pick one card or we can play the you pick one of each and Let's that's what you have each. to work with all right so i'm gonna do like tarot card style there's four stacks sure. here i'm gonna gonna put them all in front of me and start to think about this okay so i picked secret ingredient is dragon fruit okay protein is chickpea flavor is cumin vegetable is cucumber okay chickpea cucumber cumin and dragon fruit Hmm. and masa yeah well uh let's see let's see i think so do I have to like combine all of them or do I do like one by one? You or? could do it separately. You could do it. I mean, we, you don't have to combine them all into one dish. Yeah. yeah this well, is, this is, we're making a, a nice uh, meal tonight yeah, and, okay. and we want Masa to be the star and this is what we happen to have okay, um, at, at the ready in our kitchen. Great. So. Well, I mean, I love like fruit salads, like fresh where it's still quite hot in Los Angeles right now. So something really refreshing. Uh, I'm thinking, I mean, tostadas are just the easiest that can make a meal out of anything. So maybe like a little, you know, dragon fruit, cucumber salad with, sure. uh, you know, like a little scoop of tostada to kind of eat it as like a nice crunch to it. Yeah, I love um, that. You know, uh, 
chickpeas. Yeah, there's so many things. You could get chickpea flour and roll that into masa, which okay. is like, yeah. you know, we do that with wheat flour. We do that right. with lots. So I think that's actually really interesting. Um, nice compliment. Also, just like if you've got hummus in your fridge, like I literally put that on a sope as like my fat. And sure. Uh, we'll have that instead of like a pita if I don't have pita on hand, which is sure. like yeah, pretty much all the time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Cumin. Uh, the the one that comes to mind the most is the these lamb the lamb cumin uh, birria gnocchi that we were talking uh-huh. about earlier uh-huh. that Gerardo Gonzalez did. That is like the most haunting dish, and cumin is front and center in there. So um, yeah, I, I would I would I'm going to be making that very soon on my single burner working burner at sure. home uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds great you want to do one more round sure let's do it all right so secret ingredient is eel oh eel. Man. okay here Love we go eel, eel lamb okay, chives lamb. every time i hear the word chives i think of Jacques Pepin. who's like i'm gonna put a little chives <laughs> yes like, yes yes uh, totally using <laughs> yeah. my brain all right so we got peas uh, why don't we do a pea guacamole you know okay. which yeah, is sure. uh is is not new but you know still fun and right. a fun way i i don't actually like eating whole peas my daughter loves it she's one okay but yeah i just feel like it reminds me of like tough yeah, yeah. like forced eating <laughs> right. as a yes. child yeah hard times uh, so yeah. let's make it into a guacamole <laughs> okay um, yeah we've got some lamb um which you know we just put into that gnocchi i was talking sure, about yeah. um you know so not to be redundant eel oh man how do we want the eel how do we want to serve that up i would do i mean I'm just wanting a taco now. Eel taco sounds like too easy. Let's go to something a little bit more, uh, I don't know, like a deeper cut, a deeper masa mm-hmm. cut. Mm-hmm. Why don't we do like, um, let's do a very, let's do an eel pozole. Okay. Which is, you know, pozole's masa and developments basically right. just nixed them all. It's a grind away from right. becoming masa. Yeah. Uh, build like a nice, you know, like dashi broth with some eel in there. Uh, eel like, bones and all that good stuff yeah it uh-huh. really doesn't have that many bones let's no. just do a dashi <laughs> yeah, made okay, meal, yeah. um, and uh and finish it off with some pozole in there okay or if you want to actually do the masa you could put some chochoyotes which are like little masa dumplings um uh-huh. also known as ombliguitos because they look like little belly buttons sure yeah um and then chives chives i mean now i mentioned jacques pepin and that yeah. omelet and just uh yeah. so i'm thinking chives in an omelet uh and we can we can Let's do a sope with a poached egg and okay. some chives, uh, some chives on uh-huh, top, uh-huh. Uh, and um, definitely like a, a liberal amount of hot sauce. Sure. To finish yeah. it off. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was great. Uh, thank you so much for playing along. <laughs> can can you masa it? Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for being on Salt and Spine, Jorge. This was so great. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brian. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you'll find at saltandspine.substack.com. There you'll find three featured recipes from Masa. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get tons of exclusive content and bonus recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and much more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. 
Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.